The American dream has become a nightmare. Signs of the time are on cardboard on corners in town. Like a cancer that silently spreads, there's an unspoken fear. We're on our way down. We must take America back. Main Street to Wall Street, cities and states, Washington D.C. Hi, folks. I am Alan Watsons. This is cutting through the Matrix, standing in for John Stadmiller. Who I think will probably be back tomorrow. Going over the the big changes, really, rather than going to specific stories that are happening today, because there's so many of them, which simply confirm what I'm talking about right here, that nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by chance. Even the presidents, as far as I'm concerned, and people think this is extreme, but I really do believe that they know years in advance who the formula, which the formula is, who's getting in when, and when it's going to be their turn to be put in. I really believe it's that that's rigged. I really do. I really, really do believe it's that rigged. And since there's only one agenda, and every single president, regardless of the party he belongs to, is all on board with the United Nations and their agenda, uh, then there is only one agenda, obviously, regardless of the present. It's interesting that Jefferson himself said that when you see um, basically an agenda going through, continuing through between changes of houses, meaning changes of, of Congress parties, he says, then you'll know you're under tyranny. And to be honest with you, uh, as far back as I can remember about the U.S., I, I, that's what I've seen. In fact, everybody who signed on to the United Nations, and even the League of Nations as far back as that, really uh, was under the, a new system without telling the public. When the League of Nations was set up, and it was set up, by the way, by those who formed the Council on Foreign Relations and the predecessors, the, the, it was actually the Lord Milner Group and the Cecil Rhodes Society run by Rothschild in Britain. There was a co-founder of Cecil Rhodes for world government, by the way, that's what it was, and also to take over the resources of all the world. That was also part of their stipulated agenda. And they blossomed into the Royal Institute for International Affairs, but they couldn't call it the branch of the U.S., the Royals, so they called it the Council on Foreign Relations. They had another name before they called it the Council on Foreign Relations, but it's the same thing. Always working towards a global government, government. and Professor Carl Quigley was the official historian for them for a while. He had access to all their records. He was updating them. He was all for the world agenda, and he said the same thing. He says, there is a parallel government that is not, not responsible to the public, in other words, they can, they, they can work towards whatever they desire, with, unimpeded. There's no inquiry into what they're up to. There's no public uh, inputs or, or demands made on them whatsoever. They simply make the agenda go along with it, work it into being. And he said the technocrats... Now, what's a technocrat? A technocrat really is a worker who runs across the globe to make these things happen, with big finances backing them like Maurice Strong is one of them. 
uh, Zygmunt Brzezinski, of course, everyone knows of, and the same with Kissinger. But there's many, many more. They are given their mandates, they go out to the world with, with unlimited financing, and they make it happen. All to bring in this new society. Now, all being Darwinists, all using the big think tanks and futurist societies or the trend reports that they're always getting in on what they see with all these trends that are happening, how will the future be? They came to the conclusion an awful long time ago, believing, as I say, in the Darwin type uh, of belief of evolution, that only an elite should survive in an unsustainable world. Back after these messages. Listening to the National Intel Report with your host, John Statmiller. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watts, standing in for John Statmiller, who I think is back tomorrow, talking about the real world, the world that the media doesn't go on about very much at all, tends to ignore, in fact, because the media's job is to keep you in a different reality. Media is an essential arm of government. In fact, they couldn't have got to where they've got today without the aid of the media, the complicity of the media, keeping the big picture out of their papers so that you will think that things are just happening by chance and terrorism happens by chance and all of this kind of stuff. I mentioned before about how they, they said that the loan, the loan person, the loaner is a danger because, you see, the loaner is unpredictable. Groups are very predictable, very predictable. But the loner, who knows what he's thinking? Who knows uh, what he's even studying, perhaps? Who knows if he's got the ability to go out to the public and say the king has no clothes in such a way that the spell is broken? That's what they're terrified of. They're not afraid of, of, of guns or revolutions. If you've noticed, if you've noticed, across the Western world since the 80s, especially the built-up internal armies of police-specialized units that are, that are military units with all the latest combat gear and weaponry to deal with the fallout down the road in case it happens. It might happen, it might not, but just in case. And they've got, of course, unlimited funding to do so. Why? Because the taxpayer pays for everything. We pay so that the elite themselves can go on into a glorious future as they bring down the populations of the old type that are no longer necessary. They're just using up resources that will be needed by those who are going to go on for the next million years. The better types, the Darwinian types, those fittest to survive, who've proven it by gaining wealth and power and holding on to it through generations. That is one of the definitions of it, in fact. Whereas the rest of you, you see, well, you're just the the useless eaters, as Lord Bertrand Russell says. And why, why, as I say, do you have this impunity for the big foundations that have been working towards this, going around, again, in a parallel government system to bring all this about? Why have the governments even allowed it? It's because government is the show for the public. It's been a show for an awful long time for the public. 
It's only the legal arm to sign into law that which the big technocrats and the big foundations want. The new Soviet system, and that's what they called this, in fact, by the way, a long, long time ago. As I said, during the Rees Commission, when they would amalgamate the, the Soviet system with the West, not quite communist, not quite capitalist, but socialist. A socialist system where the big international bankers will still pull the strings for power. And they said that um, it would be a completely different new order of things, a new world order. That's what socialism really is. It's all order, in fact, in socialism. In socialism, you have a planned society, a society where you decide eventually who will be born, who will not be born. You'll only be born if they have a function for you to fill. If not, you won't be born. And eventually it'll be who can mate with whom, and so on. That's why George Orwell could put all of that in his book 1984, written, or at least published in 1948. Now, he was picked to work towards this system when he was at Cambridge University. And he really believed what he was indoctrinated with by his professors. He went off and fought in the Spanish Civil War, in fact, until he found out what communism really was, came back to, to Britain and elsewhere, gave lectures to the socialist clubs, and they turned their backs on him because they wanted to believe that communism was just the same thing. And he says, no, it's not. A Sovietized system means ruled by councils. Ruled by councils. And theoretically, every group of society will have a spokesman who will be giving complaints to the Politburo and having them answered and dealt with. That's the theory of the Soviet system of democracy. Today, you have the same system all across the Western world. They're called non-governmental organizations. For everything in society, they speak for you. Most of you have never even heard of them. You certainly haven't seen the, the hundred, the, actually the thousands of them that are out there, thousands of them. Unelected bodies, all paid for by the foundations with unlimited financing. Who can even take groups of them every year across the world to all their global meetings and pay for it all for them? Who then put in their demands to the United Nations, who then take that treaty that they drew up and go around all the national governments and get them to sign it into law? That's how it happens. Well, that's what's that got to do with you? Nothing, because you don't, you've you got nothing to do. You have no input whatsoever. That's how it's been my whole life. And yours. The big decisions have never even been put to you. In fact, you don't even know what they have been. A sustainable world for sustainable development. The planned society, the Darwinian idea. Now, in the Soviet Union, the Politburo picked the NGO leaders. It wasn't the people. So it was the same sham. The leaders would demand exactly what the Politburo wanted them to demand and then pass it into law. We have the same thing here. The NGOs demand, and the governments are only so happy to listen to them, they pass it into law, and they say, oh, the people have spoken. That's the new type of what they're calling democracy. Well, as I say, you've never seen an NGO on the ballot box as an NGO or as a party, and you never will. It's a parallel government we live in. That's the reality of it. 
Rockefeller, of course, is so well known in the U.S. because, and I, I don't go by the, just the names like Rockefeller, Rothschild. There was a massive organization that put Rothschild in his place, believe you me, and all the other sons in the banking world. It was already in existence to put them in and protect them. And it was the same thing, too, with the Rockefellers. One old man did not suddenly become a benefactor because they got a couple of PR specialists in after he had gunned down lots of miners during a strike and suddenly just had a change of heart. No, they brought in, one of them became the Prime Minister of Canada. That was his reward, in fact, PR specialists to remake him, give him a total makeover, and suddenly he was a benefactor But he didn't sit there and decide all of the different areas that he was going to put money into. He didn't sit and decide all the levels of really what was uh, another miniature government, actually maybe even as bigger than your own government, that was going to work a new system into the world. No one person could deal with all of that. And yet no time at all in the early 1900s, all of that was set up. Unlimited financing. Now it's trillions of dollars they've got to, to play with. Non-taxable too, by the way, so they're untouchable. And each generation of the, of the Rockefellers has been working towards this global agenda. Remember, the Rockefellers too were the ones who set up uh, mandatory sterilization in the U.S. back in the 20s and 30s, and it went right on into some U.S. states into the 1970s. And guess what? They're bringing it back. It was the Rockefellers and the Carnegie Foundation that funded the Cold Springs Harbor bunch who brought in the Cattlemen's Association to see if they could breed people like cattle for certain qualities and traits along the lines of Plato. It was the Rockefellers who put out the the Better American magazine where they showed you the best families for the month, eugenically speaking, and would show you all the inferior types that should really be eradicated Adolf Hitler didn't start up that idea. He borrowed it all from the West. And that actually came up in the Nuremberg trials, by the way. That was one of the defenses. Well, the U.S. was already using it. And who, again, who was using it? Who promoted it? Rockefellers did. Who are these Rockefellers? where every generation works and, and doesn't go off to be a pianist and says, I don't want nothing to do with No, he's in the same business of, of getting richer and richer and keeping his foundations going and taking part in the foundations. Here's a Rockefeller today at 94, going across the world at all the global meetings, demanding sustainability, who's up on YouTube at 94 saying they've got to reduce the world's population by any means possible. Are these people or are they monsters? What, what, what are they exactly? And how come they have such prestige apart from their cash? Or is it their cash that gives them their prestige? Is it solely that? How come that when they declassify information from the CIA after 40 or 50 years, you find there was a Rockefeller in World War II? And in the post-Cold War period, the Cold War period, you say, uh, who literally, although he wasn't technically a member of the CIA, he was allowed access to all their records and actually funded a lot of their operations when they couldn't get straight funding uh, from their governments. Who are these characters that wield so much power? 
Or, as I say, is it simply the fact that they have so much money that that is power and that's all that's necessary? What is it? How come that every generation is just like their dads before them with an utter fanaticism with its agenda? They're more like clones of themselves than anyone out in society. Predictable. Here's what one of the Rockefellers said, remember. He says, this present window of opportunity which a truly peaceful and interdependent world order might be built will not be open for too long. We're on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right, the right, the right major crisis and the nations will accept the new world order. That was September 23rd, 1994. Back after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watson. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. Standing in for John Stadmiller, who I think is back tomorrow. And remember, too, is a thing, too, that uh, Canadians can't appreciate, I think, or maybe they can appreciate. Uh, I don't know if Americans appreciate it very much, because the U.S. is the, the last country on the planet, and that's dwindling fast as far as rights go, where you can actually speak out on radio shows like this one. This isn't just internet, it it goes galaxy-wide through satellite and so on. But it's the last place where you can actually say something. And the the other countries, it's taboo, it's forbidden. You have the authorized, licensed uh, big boys who are in with big commerce and so on only. And that's it. You don't have... That yeah, they do have the internet where they can Twitter to each other and complain, but they don't have talk shows like this. Because really, uh, the time will come when it's forbidden. And I read articles last week on my own show uh, of how uh, the information czar, as they call them. It's interesting, everyone's called a czar now, isn't it? Isn't it? You think that's all coincidence in Obama's administration? But the information czar has said that they have to come down on conspiracy theorists. They like to tar you as conspiracy. I don't use the word conspiracy. A conspiracy is something which is left to what you believe because it cannot be proven. We use the facts here. The facts are what you use. Checkable facts. So, appreciate what you have and people should support them because, honestly, there's not much left. I get so many... Uh, emails from across the world, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Britain, uh, different parts of Europe, where they, they really are so envious of the fact that, that there are places in the U.S. where you can speak out on the airwaves with your own voice, not just typing something to someone else, but actually speaking out. So, so you stand up or it will dwindle away. And getting back to what I'm saying, Another thing they also knew after the American Revolution was that the bankers would take over if you did not keep them in check. That was so widely discussed, I won't even bother mentioning the books to read about it, but uh, that was that was the cause of big, big debates at the very beginning, because they understood what had happened in Europe. They watched Europe, they knew the history. There's one thing about people back then, uh, that better educations, those at least who had 
the private educations, as all education was back then in the 1700s, they had better educations than the average person has today. They could read Latin and Greek. They knew the histories of ancient cultures. They knew the histories down through to their present time. And they knew that tyranny always existed. It's the nature within society uh, of struggle for power between dominant people. And every generation more are born. They want dominance and power. Everybody else suffers because of it down through the ages, but nothing has changed up to the present time. And when you get leagues of them, combinations of the same characters who have money and power and seek more power, you're in big trouble. They talked about the, the ability to do it simply through money manipulation and the ownership of money and the distribution of money alone. Thomas Jefferson talked to, or wrote to John Taylor in 1816, and it's in the letters of Jefferson. And it says, the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity, meaning future generations, under the name of funding, is but swindling, swindling futurity on a large scale. It's nothing but a swindle, all this borrowing money stuff. Always has been a swindle. Why should governments be borrowing anything from anywhere when they're supposedly run the whole country within on everything which they collect on taxes? It used to be export and import taxes only. That was enough to run the countries, especially the U.S. But, of course, once the good times roll and folk are getting happy, they stop watching what's going on. And the big boys know it, and away they go. And wars are fantastic for this. Under war, you give up all these rights, thinking you'll get through it, and things will go back to normal. Well, Professor Carl Quigley said, again, the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, he says wars have different purposes, but one of the main purposes is to change society. He says you can get more done in five years of war on a governmental and bureaucratic level of change than you can in 50 years of peace and propaganda. We give up our rights and we never go back to where we were. Never. And you're always left with a massive debt. It was only two or three years ago that Britain admitted it had just finished paying off the debt for World War I. They've still got World War II, Korea, and a whole bunch of other ones to go since then plus the so-called present war on terror that's costing more than any of them. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. To the National Intel Report, the real talk radio show. Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watts, and I'm standing in for John Stadmiller, who's off today for another half hour, and then I'll be back on again at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. But really, not so much giving you what's happening today from news articles, because I have thousands of them I could go over. But really, it, it, it ends up being an endless stream as we follow what's been done to us. And I've used analogies so many times in the past where it's like being laboratory rats. And you're in big cages in the laboratory, 
And at night, the lights go off and you have some peace and you can chat to each other and then you fall asleep. And in the morning, you wake up early and you sit and natter amongst yourselves about what they're going to do to you today. What do you think they're going to do? Will they stick the electrodes in their brain today or is it going to be the injections and so on and so on? That's all we do is we repeat the news and repeat the news. We're repeating the effects of things, but never getting into the causes of things. Why Why is that? Because we don't want to believe, in a sense, that it's really that bad. We don't want to believe that, yet this has actually been done on purpose. And until people can cross that barrier, yet they, they are doing this. They have got to a stage where they, where they, they really want to depopulate they have gotten to the stage, and if you read their global meetings, you'll find out about sustainability. If you go into the archives from, from the Optimum Population Trust, and I have some of them on my own website, go into them. And these are big players in the world field talking about depopulation by every and all means possible. Until you cross that barrier and say, my God, they're actually doing it. They're serious. Then you'll still be left. It's... In, in La La Land, in a no man's land of, of um, irritation, anger, and agitation because of, look what they're doing to us today. Well, guess what? I could pick up another hundred articles tomorrow and read them, and the next day, and the next day. And you know something? Yapping about it doesn't do a darn thing. It's a mental leap you've got to take and cross over and accept the fact that War has been declared upon you on every level a long time ago. And all these articles are just the effects of that war. Can you believe for an instance those at the top don't know these things? Look at who is behind Obama. Never mind Obama. I, I always say the presidents and prime ministers are not, nothing but frontmen. It's the ones behind them that's important. And here you have a lineup of ardent, ardent globalists. Uh, some of them were communists not so long ago, openly. They all talked about the need to depopulate. I've gone over the articles written by them, and some of them wrote books about it back in the 60s and 70s, and later even. We should be very, very afraid. Here they are in power. And we think, well, they get, they're different once they're in power. They, it's like a religious conversion, I guess. They, they swear allegiance, they go through all that stuff, and they're converted into just normal Americans now. Do you really, really believe that? Do you really believe that? God help you if you do. They can bypass all the democratic principles, and they've been doing it for so long now, you can't even keep up with executive orders. Britain has the same thing, executive orders. When they want something on the global agenda to go through, rather than have it debated in public, and at least in Parliament, that's what they call in public, uh, and argued upon, they want to rush something through, they put off a, 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 diplomat, a diplomatic expert to the Queen, and she signs it into law, and that's law. That's what they call democracy in Britain. The most important things that we should know about what's happening are kept secret from the public under official secrets acts. Not to be published. 
You know, the free trade negotiations for the amalgamations of the Americas that was really the precursor for NAFTA, it set up the foundation for NAFTA, is buried outside Ottawa, underground, in an archive, and hasn't to be opened for another, I think, 30 to 50 years. That's a great democracy. That's democracy in action. Why would they have to keep that secret from the public? Because we see in 30 to 50 years, there will be no Canada. There will be no United States of America. Certainly not as anything that you could possibly recognize. That's what they do. And we think we're voting people in. We go through that farce. We think we're voting people in for us. People who are vetted through the, an institution way so high that you don't even know they exist. They vet every one of those guys long in advance. Here's a, a good example of, of what the public it was kept from the public. You know, most of the stuff that happened during the Cold War, by the way, is still reclassified for 50 years. P- Pierre Trudeau, what a character this guy was. He was an ardent communist not just a sympathizer or fellow traveler, ardent communist. He led the Comintern, the Young Communist Party for Canada, over to the Comintern meeting in Moscow in 1952. During World War II, he went up and down the, the docks at Halifax on a motorcycle with a, a German helmet on, yelling at all the troops embarking to go off and fight the Germans, because at that time, you see, Moscow and Germany had an alliance to fight together. Of course, he threw away the helmet as soon as he was ordered to, and was against Germany once Germany and Stalin fell out. But he eventually became Prime Minister of Canada. And he altered totally the face of Canada for internationalism. Just like Mr. Brown did the same thing and Mr. Blair did the same thing in Britain. And Pierre Trudeau reclassified a document that was written in, and, and put under Official Secrets Act in 1947, I think it was, for 30-odd years. On his last day of being in office, he reclassified it for another 30 to 50 years. What was that list? It was a list of all the communist members from the first defector from the Soviet Union. Of all the guys who were working in the Canadian and American bureaucracies, hundreds of them, reclassified that again from the public. We're not supposed to know. Why? Because, you see, they take care of their own. That's why. It was already communist back then. And their offspring are now working in the same jobs, and governments too. Here's what happened in Britain. Now, David Kelly was a top scientist who spoke out against Blair going into Iraq. He said it was all baloney, there was no weapons of mass destruction. David Kelly also was a scientist who worked with Israel on ethnic-specific diseases, viruses for warfare purposes. This is a very important guy. He worked for the British government in collusion with Israel for future wars. And here's an article here. He was He was murdered. Before he was going up to a high court inquiry to expose this stuff, he was found dead. And everybody took the official version, oh, he committed suicide, even though his wife said it was baloney. Even though he said two days before, they'll find me in the forest with my, my arms slit. 
and the official version came out and a bunch of doctors got together and demanded a second autopsy. And they got it and said this guy was murdered. Well, guess what? This is from the, the Mail Online and it's from January 2010, 23rd. David Kelly, post-mortem, that's autopsy to be kept secret for 70 years. This is, this is your freedom and democracy. This is as doctors accuse Lord Hutton of concealing vital information. Vital evidence which could solve the mystery of the death of government weapons inspector Dr. David Kelly will be kept under wraps for up to 70 years. Why would we possibly say we've got democracy? We've been dragged into wars that were utterly contrived. Completely lied to. Whole nations were lied to over and over and over and over again. Ad nauseum, if we can all remember it, by our government leaders. For geopolitical purposes and big finance. And we were told nothing of the truth. And by using that technique, well, they might have weapons of mass destruction, or they have them, they can invade anybody they wish to. So they, what, do they, what do they do uh, when they, everybody comes up with vital evidence? They, they kill them. And then when the topsy comes up, oh, they, they put it under the official secret site. Nobody's to know the results for 70 years. Well, in 70 years, no one will care. And that is the world that you live in. And it happens in the U.S. just the same. With orders and council and executive orders, all the same thing. No public input, nothing. No explanations to the public either. Why bother? And you know something is quite true. 87% of the public don't care what's going on at any particular time. They really don't. They really, really don't. There was a survey done in World War I by the big marketing companies. And it's one of the first big polls they did. It was to do, was to find out how people really thought about the war and getting into the war and involvement in the war and all the rest of it. And they really found that 87% of the public didn't really care what was happening. Really much about anything up there. It was Plato that said it thousands of years ago. That a public who doesn't watch government is under tyranny or will be under tyranny. You're encouraged not to look into government. In fact, you're encouraged to feel that you're somehow alienated from it. And uh, it's an autonomous thing that just runs above you. It's autonomous. It's like gravity. It just exists, you know. And you're trained now to believe that specialists somehow run the world to our advantage. You don't have to worry your little head. Go and play. Go and play and be happy. There are all kinds of ways to make you happy. If you're not happy about things, go and get pills from a doctor and make you happy. As long as you're happy, that's all that matters. But whatever you do, don't get involved in what's going on. Whatever you do, don't do that. Apart from that, what can you do about it? Who are you? You're told this. You're felt to feel small and useless. But then again, think of the incredible show that's put on for you. The show of politics, this show of elections, this constant show of, of speaking to the people. It's a big show. They need you to believe in this. They need you because they need you to cooperate, don't they? How do you cooperate by your compliance to everything that's done to you? That's how you cooperate. 
and were cooperating into the grave. When Roald Regan was in, a commission came to him to talk about the project for long-range wars, future wars. And the reason that Ronald Reagan brought in Jean Kirkpatrick was she's spoken to the American Jewish Congress, it was, and it leaked out into, into a magazine. She was talking about the long-term projections for American policy, that they're going to have all these conflicts down the road with emerging nations or newly emerging nations and all their conflicts. And therefore, it was more practical to put permanent bases across the world in advance rather than going over to every war, setting up temporary bases and pulling them apart as you leave and going back home, waiting for the next one. So Ronnie apparently got word of this, put her on his board of experts, and they worked out this project. At the same time, they're working out the Star Wars project for long-range wars. And guess what? All that time ago, they had the lists drawn up of the countries they'd probably have to go into for geopolitical and economic reasons. And you know that America is building so many, these aren't just bases abroad. These are cities, permanent cities across the world. Trillions of dollars worth of cities. Where at one point, yeah, they're used by the military on the perimeter, but they have all these civilians and bureaucratic staffs in the center. And one day, these will be the super cities that the elite will gravitate to, surrounded by their protection, their gated communities, you might call it, of the future. All being set up because they've said themselves, eventually, as this new system comes into being, the old system crumbles. As it crumbles, guess what? All those goons that you see have been trained through video games and movies that wear the black ninja outfits and the machine guns and the masked face, something like characters out of the Star Wars movies, not by coincidence, by the way, where they're all faceless. We'll be keeping you all in check as everything, everything goes down and the depopulation begins, etc. Because they've said themselves, the future will be unsustainable. Now, it could definitely be sustainable, but they don't want it this way. They're using it as an excuse. They use the weather control as climate changes for excuse as well. Every excuse under the sun or under the clouds, depending on your point of view, especially the ones they make. But anything will do to bring in this new world order society. And they use it to the maximum. Meanwhile, this, the existing cities in Canada, you have noticed, and, and the U.S. and, and Europe are crumbling. They've, they've said themselves it would cost more, on a survey done two years ago, it would cost maybe 10 to 20 times as much to repair, the, say, for instance, the city of Toronto, to upgrade its infrastructure, the sewage systems, the, the lines under the city, all that stuff, than to build a new city. Well, again, that was discussed way back in the early 70s, when they talked about setting up these bases across the planet, where the elite certainly could live, as all the system back home is getting taken down. And what's interesting too, you'll notice that these cities across the world, these super cities that they're building, are very high-tech. 
they're wasting, there's no, there's, there's no expenses spared for the best quality, everything, every kind of material. These are long-term cities, not just bases for the military. But they're on leased land. Why is that? Well, look into Britain and how it always went with a strange 99-year lease program. Same with Hong Kong. You see, remember they handed Hong Kong back over to the communists? With all the non-communistic people who lived there handed right over to the communists. Do you think they're still around today? Thank you, Great Britain. There are no enemies at the top here. They're all on board together. But these cities are 99. Why is that? Because when they take the world down, and you, all of you out there, are responsible for the debt. These private places that are leased are under a different corporation. They won't be going down. But you will. That's how it's set up. And I kid you not, back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix, standing in for John Stadmiller, and I'll be back on again, remember, two at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We run, as I say, by institutions that most people haven't even heard of. If they hear of them, very few will look into them, even though they have their own websites up there and they proudly announce everything they're working on. And yet none of these organizations, these NGOs, these big think tanks are elected by any of us. They're not responsible to us for anything that they do. And governments simply take what they recommend and put it right into governmental policy. And we're only told about it after the facts. That's how government has been run for an awful, awful long time. Think tanks, academia, intelligentsia, as they call it. And we have trained, we've been trained to be happy little children. Just play. Leave the big problems to your betters, those invisible forces above you that you just know are there, even though you'll never meet them, and most folk never even know their names, nor the organizational names. They just don't know. We're trained. Just enjoy yourself and be happy. No matter what's happening, be happy. And they also know that we're the most adaptable species on the planet. We adapt into everything. But it's pat-downs at airports, security checks to get on buses now across Europe, and taxis, show your ID cards, all this kind of stuff. Their traditional warfare scenario. We've still got the rationing to come. And if you look into the Council on Foreign Relations' own website, you'll see that they've been working on that with their own personal think tanks. They, were, they have think tanks on every part of social life that you could ever imagine, and many that you couldn't imagine whatsoever. And the Club of Rome keeps you updated as well with their new website. They're the premier think tank for world policy. Do any of you vote for them? No. How could you vote for them? You can. You can't even just apply to be a member. But they make the big decisions with their big think tanks and academic professors from all over the world who get two salaries often, often from there too. They get different tenures uh, from both, plus the universities they work for. And this is how it's been for an awful long time. The Club of Rome recently put out a report 
It says uh, redefining and reorienting economic growth. And they said the present path of world economic development is not sustainable. You'll hear that over and over. That means all of you folks should not be alive. In the longer term, this implies that explicit strategies must be put in place to restructure and reorientate economies onto a sustainable path. And they're, they're talking about depopulation, if you can't really get it. This is a major challenge, but also a huge opportunity, because every disaster to them is an opportunity. And it says, to lay the foundations of the new economies of the 21st century, which will be innovative, resource-efficient, and environmentally sustainable, and more inclusive and socially just. Socially just to whom? To themselves. And more inclusive. It says this will require new models of growth, development, and globalization, new policies, and adapted and flexible institutions. EU 2020, this is to go up to the year 2020, should have the ambition to initiate internal partnerships. That's outside of our range again, outside of voting. And processes, that's all the intergovernmental departments working together to lay the base for such a fundamental breakthrough and to provide leadership in the world community in this direction. The world community. Sounds wonderful, like, like something out of the end of a Disney cartoon, doesn't it? Well, folks, it's time you did something. Learn, teach, get involved, and know your enemy, and then you can fight back in the right kind of way. From, from myself and Hamish, Hamish is the dog from Ontario, Canada. Good night to me, your God, or your God's school with you.